Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The divine being has never needed. Never. If I were hungry, God booms in the 50th Psalm. I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) For the world and its fullness are mine. It's not just that God doesn't get hungry. If I were hungry, he doesn't get hungry. But it's even if some, in some theoretical way he were, you would not feed him. (laughs) Pagan deities are not like this. And if you were ever assigned to read Homer's Odyssey, there in the very first chapter, you see that Greek god Poseidon goes down to Ethiopia. Why? Quote, there he sat at the feast and took his pleasure. He hungered. And the sacrifices of the Ethiopians in that case fed him. They were a feast for him. That wasn't an anthropomorphism or a metaphor. That's how the Greeks really thought of their gods. They ate. They had needs. They craved. They hunger. They had bodily pleasures, desires, and appetites. Not Yahweh. It's true that God did place his temple in olden time in the midst of Israel and there animal sacrifices were required. But even then, God didn't need the animal sacrifices. They prefigured. They were a shadow of the future fulfillment in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that Lamb was a provision from God. So even the sacrifices to God were mainly about something from God. This is affirmed when Paul speaks to the Greek pantheon-worshipping Athenians. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In theology, we refer to this fact about God, his needlessness, if you will, by a word, aseity, or maybe you could also call it his independence or his self-sufficiency. We simply mean that God exists of himself. You depend on him to exist right now. Who does he depend on? No one but himself. He exists of himself. Even God's being is unique. He is in a way that's unique. Practically, this means that God doesn't need you. (laughs) Congratulations. God does not need you. Who has given a gift to God, says Paul, that he might be repaid? What did you give God that he's going to repay you? Instead, from him and through him and to him are all things That means that everything that we ever give to God, our worship, our sacrifice, our very lives, first they came from God. As that Chicagoan of the last century, A.W. Tozer, has said, quote, need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. Brothers and sisters, that is wonderful news. It is so wonderful to be useless to God in this sense. He does value us. He does use us. Don't misunderstand, but he doesn't need us. You understand that? 
And why is that so wonderful? God's aseity, the fact that he doesn't need you, is the reason you can be confident that if you are in Christ, God's love for you will never waver. It is absolute, it is certain, and entirely committed to your good. If God needed you to obey to this level and you obey to this level, then his love, his affection for you would be lessened that much. But if God doesn't need your obedience whatsoever, and he loves you like he said of Israel, because I love her, that's why I love her. And if that's God's love for you, then even in your seasons of disobedience and when you struggle with sin, God's love for you does not waver. God's love, his affection, it is like the fire at the burning bush on Sinai. It's burning, it's blazing, but the bush is not the fuel of it. The bush is not consumed, and so God's affection for his people, it's not using up your obedience, and once your obedience is gone, it's used up. No. God's love for you doesn't depend on how well you evangelized this week. God's affection for you, his covenant commitment to do you good all your days does not depend on how well you functioned within your family and how well you grew, how quickly and how firmly you grew in Christian disciplines this week. Let us do all of these things, but not in a way that suggests God needs it, not in a way that suggests God served by human hands as if he needed anything whatsoever. Similarly, because we serve a God like this, an independent, self-sufficient God, you and I can love in a way the world has never seen. We, like God, can love not dependent on the other person that we're loving. When Jesus gives the great and shocking command, love your enemies, he follows not long afterward with, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies because God loves your enemies, not because of them, but out of himself, out of the abundance of the overflow of the riches of the goodness of God himself, he loves. And we can too. God is so much that he's not just enough for himself, he's enough for himself and for everyone else, including us. Now, it's important for me to point out this fact about God, just to remind you of it, because today we are talking about money. You saw last week in our text just how little Paul really cared about money, <laughs> almost shockingly so. He said he could be satisfied if he had a lot of it or if he didn't have much at all. How? Because he had a power source. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was the essence of his view of money. But the fact is that, really, Paul was a traveling missionary, and he did depend in some sense on the financial gifts of others, including the Philippians. And that's why he wrote this letter. It's because they sent him a financial gift, yet again, to support him in his work. And on a human level, Paul needed that gift. But what you're going to see in our text today is that on an ultimate level, Paul says, I didn't need it. Why? Because of how rich, how glorious, and how great Paul's God is. He depended on God and knew that God would meet every ultimate need. If you have that view of God, it will change the way you think about money. So let's look at that here, Philippians chapter 4, and we're starting in verse 15. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Right now, you have money. Some of you feel like, no, I don't. Okay, you might not have much money. The Macedonians, of which Philippi was a part, did not have much money on the whole, Paul says elsewhere. So you might not have much, but you have it. And today we are talking, because this is what our text talks about, about the Christian discipline of giving. Without you giving, this church can't function. Without you giving, the dozen or so missionaries that we support overseas, everywhere from England to Purdue here in the States to India, all across the globe, they would not be able to eat and live if they were not being supported, partly supported by you. There is a mission that has been given to all Christendom by God himself, and the mission is to make disciples of all nations. That's what we're doing here. That's what these missionaries are doing out there. That's the mission, and the mission takes money. On a human level, it takes money. In human economies, you have money, and you give it, and then you get food, and you eat the food, and you go on living. So... The mission itself, even the sustenance of life for those doing the mission, it requires money. So you and I might expect when we look at the Apostle Paul, and Paul was the missionary par excellence. He was a goer. He traveled the Mediterranean world. He had no real home to be staying at. He was always traveling, planting churches, preaching the gospel, supporting churches that were already planted. That was his entire life. And Paul was as aware as anybody, he's not ignorant, that everything he did required money so he could eat, so he could live. So you might expect, aware that the mission requires some money, that Paul would be desperate for funds. Literally, he will die without them. He needs them. And Roman imprisonment, he's in prison in Rome. They didn't supply your needs back then like they do today. So you literally depended on the beneficence of others. So you would think that Paul was desperate for funds, soliciting funds from these people. But when you read a text like ours, that's exactly what you do not find. <laughs> Paul did not go to the churches and pass around an offering plate and play the music very sentimentally and try to get at the emotion and get that money in the plate or I can't eat. That was not Paul's strategy. It was actually very much the opposite. Paul said things like, not that I seek the gift. <laughs> Why does Paul seem so 
flippant almost, so nonchalant about the basic necessity of his life, in this case money, and it was because Paul knew that for himself and for his mission, these depended not ultimately on the Philippians, not ultimately on any Christians, not ultimately on you. These depended ultimately on God. And God would not fail. This gave to Paul a real peace and a real calm when it came to money. He knew what Hudson Taylor, the missionary, would say so long afterward. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply in an ultimate sense. In other words, Paul did not need the Philippians' gifts. He did not need their money in an ultimate sense. Why? Because he had a God who can be described as independent, self-sufficient. And it was his confidence in God's fullness that allowed him to look at money the way that you're supposed to look at money, as an instrument, as a tool, but not as that important. So today we want to consider, really in Paul's own words here, these two things. Number one, the mission that in this world God calls us to give to. We give for the mission. That's true here too. But secondly, and maybe most importantly, we want to end by considering the motivation that God provides for why you give. So let's look at the mission that giving is for, and then let's consider the motivation that drives us to giving, drove Paul. Paul is not going to focus on money, but he also doesn't deny its reality. We're not saying that there's no such thing as money or that it doesn't matter in any secondary sense. That's not what Paul says either. Look at verses 15 and 16. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... Here's a mission. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Here in this verse, these set of verses, we have the two sides of giving. He says it, literally, giving and receiving. He calls it a partnership. This shows you that there are two parties involved, not just one. It's Paul and the Philippians, or to make it more general and abstract through all time, it's the goers and the senders. Paul's the goer who's going on the mission to spread the gospel and make disciples, and the Philippians are the ones sending him, and Paul calls this a partnership in giving and receiving. Both sides are very necessary. When you think of money and you think of giving as a Christian, you should keep both of these sides in mind. First of all, there are the goers. Every one of us is called to participate in the growth of the gospel testimony in this world. Nobody gets an excuse. Nobody gets out of it. But you know that only some of us are called to leave our homes and to go far away specifically for the purpose of expanding the gospel's reach. You Sitting here right now, here's your home. In 10 years, you might be in some other part of the globe specifically for the purpose of bringing the gospel where it hasn't been heard or has been heard much less. That's the situation Paul was in. You may, in the words of the beloved apostle, go out for the sake of the name. 
You see this in Paul. He was a goer. He speaks of the beginning of the gospel. When Paul says the beginning of the gospel in this text, he doesn't mean that's when the gospel was born. He doesn't mean that's when the gospel was revealed. That happened through Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. It had already happened. What's the beginning of the gospel? He means when I, Paul, who was going through the Mediterranean world, heeded the call, come over and help us, to go into Macedonia to show up in your city, Philippians, when you were there worshiping the Greek pantheon of gods, living in your ignorance and sin held captive by the devil, Paul shows up and he's the first one to bring the gospel message about what God's doing in the world through Jesus Christ, reconciling sinners to himself through nothing but faith in Christ and what he's done on the cross. Paul brought that information. They never knew it before. So from the vantage point of the Philippians, because Paul was a goer, because he went there, they can mark the beginning of the gospel as the day Paul showed up. This was technically the second of Paul's third three missionary journeys when he shows up in Philippi, but for them, it was the very beginning. And this is true of all missionary going. God calls you to be a goer. You're called to something immensely important for this very reason, is that the beginning of the gospel for people right now out at the edges of the world, it's not even begun. The gospel's not even begun in many places in this world, especially that place you may know called the 1040 window, the other side of the world where it's usually dangerous and forbidden to preach the gospel. And there are whole people groups who have never heard. For them, the beginning of the gospel has not started yet, but it's going to start soon because you're going to go. Paul says, how will people call on Jesus in whom they've not believed? And how are they going to believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how are they going to hear about him unless somebody preaches about him? And how are they going to preach about him unless someone is sent? That is, unless they go, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This very moment, there are people in all parts of the planet who don't even know a portal has been opened to heaven itself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know that, and they don't know that. So how are we going to get that information out of your head into their head? You're going to go. You're going to go, and you're going to tell them that. And it's the beginning of the gospel for them when you do. Paul says in those early days himself, he left Macedonia. When you go, what you'll find is not everywhere wants you to go there. And that's exactly what happened to Paul in Macedonia. He went to Philippi, he preached the gospel, and what did they do? Threw him into jail. He gets out of jail, moves on to Thessalonica, that's another city nearby in Macedonia. And what do they do there? A mob rises up trying to catch him and get him and beat him. So he leaves Thessalonica. That's what he says in this text as well. Even in Thessalonica, they were helping him. So Paul was a goer. In some sense then, this is true of goers, he depended on the financial help of the stayers. He needed other people to support him so he could go. Notice Paul does not deny that in a secondary way, 
Goers do depend on the giving of those who stay. Missionaries depend on people giving in some sense. You're probably aware that Paul actually had a marketable skill, and that was tent making. And there were times, such as with the Corinthians, when he was with that church, where he would fully support himself by working in his trade, which was tent making. The problem is, for every hour that Paul spent making tents, he did not spend that hour preaching the gospel. And so you see in the writings of Paul, even to the Corinthians, when he tells them, look, I supported myself because I didn't want to cause you any trouble, but you should have supported me. That's what he says. You should support those who go. Goers should be supported so that they can spend more time proclaiming the gospel. What he said to the Corinthian church about goers was this, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard at his own expense? Who, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And then he says, in other words, if we, the goers, have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The point is, goers should receive money from those who don't go. They should be supported. When you hear Paul say something like this, we sowed among you, we should reap material benefits, you might immediately go to the tele-evangelists who are popular today, sow your seed into our ministry, you'll get tenfold back. Nonsense. That's not what this is about. That's not what Paul's talking about. And you know that's not Paul's motivation in this case because he even, after telling the Corinthians, you should support goers like myself, the next thing he says is, but I didn't make you and I'm not going to make you do it because I don't want to put a stumbling block in front of the gospel. Even saying that, however, Paul makes it very clear, goers should be financially supported. Look at that here in our text. Even in Thessalonica, he says, you, Philippians, in Philippi, where you were probably born, you stayed there as Christians, but when I went to Thessalonica, you, from home, sent me help for my needs once and again. Those were real needs, and that was real help for his needs, and that's why he can say in verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Paul received the financial help, and in a limited sense, he needed it, and it met his needs. Those who go, the goers, oftentimes, and if you've ever lived on the support of others, I do on your support, if you've ever gone as a missionary proclaiming the gospel, and you live on the support of others, you know that it can be very uncomfortable to ask for money. You CEO folks, you know that. <laughs> when you're raising support to go to OP or whatever it is or go on staff, it can be uncomfortable to ask for money. But a text like this one and all that Paul says to the Corinthians reminds us that this is normal. This is the way God designed the going to be, that those who stay financially support goers. Goers should not be feel ashamed to have a dependence on other believers and to request. And as Paul does here, to think. If the work is noble, the request is noble. So financially, how do you think about money in the mission? If you're a goer, God intends for you to be supported in your going. What about for the rest of us? 
most of you are not ever going to be goers. That is, you're not going to become international missionaries. Some of you are, and most of you aren't. And the Christian church has been that way from its beginning. It was actually that way when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. Paul was the goer, and all the Philippians were not. So how should the Philippians think about their money in relation to the mission they were called to? Most Christians are called to be stayers, but really the better term is senders. Here's how Paul describes his relationship with them. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You who are here right now, you're all senders, every last one of you. Now listen, Paul calls it a partnership. Do you see how he tries to make it mutual? You might think Paul's doing the work, and they're just helping him do the work. And Paul says, do not think of it that way. It's not just the missionaries doing the work. You equally are doing the work by financially supporting those who go. That's why it's a partnership in giving and receiving. There's a real mutuality about it. Sometimes it's easy to think as a Christian that if I'm going to stay, if I'm going to be a sender, then I write my check and send it off to the missionaries doing the work and it gets me off the hook. You know, I almost had to go evangelize or sell everything and go overseas, but instead I just pay my tax, my Christian tax, and okay, I can stay. Almost like my grandfather, who was Amish during World War II. He was a pacifist, so America allowed him to stay and work and do agriculture here in the U.S. to support the war effort so that he wouldn't have to go and violate his conscience. That is not the situation you are in. It's not that the goers are doing the work and fighting the war, and as long as you put in your contribution, you can go home and watch football on Sunday. That is not the idea in Paul's mind. If that's what you think of sending, you're very wrong. (laughs) He says it is a partnership in giving and receiving. So as a church, that's how we view it. We have about a dozen missionaries that we support as a church. So when you're giving here, part of your giving is going to missionaries. Many of you support them also beyond that, financially. So we support missionaries financially, but we take Paul's words very seriously here. He says, if we're senders in Faith Bible, we're senders, then it's not just writing a check and sending it away, but more and more and more, we're always trying to increase in our prayer for missionaries. That's why when Kier was up here, he was talking to you about the missionaries in Brazil. We give an update every Sunday about one of the missionaries. If you have the email PPA, you get updates about the missionaries. Hopefully, when missionaries visit here on furlough, sometimes we're able to have them come and speak and visit with you. We've had people from Faith Bible Church do short-term mission trips to the missionaries we're supporting, which is always a great idea. Go connect with them. Support them if you can. Get an idea of missions if you're interested in it. It's a partnership with those who go. It's not us who stay, the senders, doing our own thing, and we're sure glad they're doing their thing. Paul says it is a partnership in giving and receiving. It goes both ways. Benefits go in both directions, but that only happens when we have a connection with our missionaries. Here, we're very grateful that we have a missions committee that Dan Gilak heads up, and they're always thinking for our missionaries, but I hope that you are as well. 
Go into the directory, look at the back. You'll see all of them listed. Write them a letter. Pray for them. Praise God for these goers. Be connected with them the best that you can. And give to them financially. Is there a gospel goer in this world who knows your name and can say, you sent me help for my needs once and again? I hope there is. And if not, let there be. Who can you send help for their needs once and again? Financially is in view here, but this can be prayer. This can be a letter. This can be an email. This can be all sorts of support. The fact is, though, that Paul calls it a partnership, and you should feel like you are in a partnership with the missionaries we support, and really, beyond that, with all missionaries who are genuinely Christian, preaching a true gospel. We are in partnership with them. We support them. My prayer for our church is that we would continue, as we are, and we would continue to be like a true Macedonian church. This is what Paul says of the giving spirit of these senders, the Macedonians. He's referring to a contribution raised for needy saints in Jerusalem during a famine, but this just shows you how they viewed giving in general. 2 Corinthians 80 says, Corinthians, we want you to know about the grace of God given among the churches of Macedonia including Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, you feel that? <laughs> their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, what we would politely call irresponsibly maybe today, of their own accord. Is that how you view giving to support gospel work? You are a part of that work. If you're a sender, you're just as much a part of that work. So we have a mission to get the gospel everywhere, here in Evansville, to the ends of the earth, and goers and senders are locked together partly by money, by the senders financially supporting the goers and having a true, deep partnership in this. So that's how you should think about money when it comes to the mission of gospel work. But this passage isn't primarily focused on that. Actually, this passage has more to say about motivation. And that's where we turn now. Here is the mission. But you may be wondering, well, we started this message by saying money doesn't matter, and then we talked a lot about money. <laughs> Well, that leads us to the motivation. Paul's not denying the reality of money, but he's very much limiting its significance. Paul wants to be very clear that our motivation for giving and receiving, even in gospel work, even in missions, is not out of some secular necessity. It's not looking at the budget and feeling quite desperate and begging people and pressuring them into giving. That's one thing Paul would never do. He would not pressure. He wanted it to be a willing giving for the gospel. He didn't pressure people into it. So what's motivating Paul if it's not fear, anxiety, and desperation to survive? Well, look at our text. Beginning in verse 17. Here's what's not motivating him. Not that I seek the gift. <laughs> okay, well, then what is motivating him? Well, here's what I seek. The fruit that increases 
to your credit. I've received full payment, he says, and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from your messenger, Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The text last week and this week, stick them together and let me ask you, does this look like a man desperate for money? <laughs> no. What goer, what missionary ever sits down to request financial support and at the end of the meeting says, but listen, I'm not really looking for money. No, that's, you do that, that's cool, that's great, you know. I know we have to say, like, well, I just want prayer. <laughs> but, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, money would be really nice. But Paul is 100% sincere here. He says, look, I'm so glad you gave, but not because of what you gave. Not that I seek the gift. This is what sets Paul apart from those dogs in the previous chapter, those who, whose gods were their belly who were voracious in their appetite toward the world, and many preachers, sadly, and ministries become this, where they need more funds. And it might even begin as for a noble cause. But eventually the attitude is, if we don't get the money, then the ministry doesn't happen. And that's when we begin to compromise. That's when we're willing to make compromises morally to pressure people into giving money. Paul's fine asking for money. You should feel fine if you're going on gospel work to ask for money. Fine. Wonderful. Even gives biblical arguments for the giving of money. But what Paul never does is compromise. What Paul never does is get on his knees and beg out of desperation. Paul has a confidence in God. What is his motivation? It is not the gift itself. Sadly, the most prominent faces of American and really global Christianity are within the prosperity gospel, and these are cases where people seek the gift itself. It doesn't matter what they say. That is 100% what they're seeking, the gift itself. They're like the Pharisees that Jesus said, devour widows' houses. They don't mind if the widow throws her last two pennies in their coffers because they want the gift itself. They want the nice house and the jet and the respectable lifestyle and the massive ministry and the nice lights and the good video quality. They want the gift itself. And into that mess, Paul speaks the truth. Not that I seek the gift. Well, what do you want then? You don't want a nice house? You don't want a nice car? What do you want, Paul? This is what I want. I want the fruit that increases to your credit. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, and Paul proves it. He says, even when I'm receiving from you, what I'm really seeking is to give. This is a matter of giving and receiving, remember? Even as you're giving, you're receiving. And Paul says, I'm rejoicing more in your receiving than your giving. I'm so glad that there is a fruit that increases to your credit. There is a blessedness to those who give. This is the motivation for Christian giving. It's not a wring your hands desperation, how will things get done? That's not the motivation. It's not anxiety. The motivation for all of us to be giving generously for gospel work is, first of all, all of the blessed promises of Scripture for those who give, that God will reward you. Scripture is not ashamed to talk about this. It talks about it all the time. 
The blessings that you get when you give generously are a major motivation. Look, the person you're giving to, again, they are helped. We're not denying that. Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. He is helped. But as far as Paul concerns, that's of minor importance. It's you who give. In the very act of giving, you're blessed. You may remember under the old covenant, this was God's appeal to Israel. He said, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, talking about the temple, and thereby put me to the test. In most cases, don't do that. (laughs) But in this one case, God says, put me to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you, you the giver, pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. You gave, you're blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Listen. I'm not promising you that your grapevine will not wither if you give for gospel work. I specifically said this is under the old covenant, but there is a principle here true for us. The physical material blessings promised here, fill my temple and I will open heaven for you, that principle remains for you. We know this because it appears in the New Testament. Here's Paul in the new covenant. No distance between us and this. He said to the Corinthians, in this matter of giving, I give my judgment. This benefits you. And then he writes again, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's what Paul means by a partnership in giving and receiving. When you give for gospel work, you are receiving a lot more than you give. Financially, no. Unless you need it for future giving, God will supply that for you, seed for the sower. But what's primarily meant here is a spiritual blessedness, is a benefit, is a richness of life. If you don't give one penny of your money to gospel work anywhere, local church, missionaries, anywhere, you are living a Christian life with less blessedness than if you give. This isn't faith Bible or me myself saying, please give so we can keep going. It's not. Forget it. We'll keep going as God wants us to keep going. This is us looking at you and saying, look, for your sake, for you, please give. If it's not the faith Bible, give to another church. Give to a missionary. This is, as Paul's saying, this isn't about me primarily. This is a focus on you. There is a rich blessedness promised in the scriptures from God to you forgiving. There is, Paul says, a fruit that increases to your credit. Now, this is only reasonable when you look at how Paul describes their giving in verse 18. And we can call every check you've ever written for gospel work, whether to local church or distantly, every check you've written can be described like this. Verse 18, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul right there 
borrows language from the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices that took place in the temple, and he uses that language to talk about you writing a check. Maybe I'm outdated here, okay? You, would, you go online and you submit your payment or whatever you're doing, okay? But when you do that, you click the button. You click it. Click. And that click arises to God, here's the picture, as if it were a, a sacrifice in the Old Testament that were pleasing to God, an aroma that rises up to God and pleases Him. This is not to say God actually has nostrils and is smelling it. That's not what we're talking about. But it's a vivid picture for you. It means God is pleased. When you give for gospel work, you click, you write, you mail your check, whatever you do, you give. And it says here, a fragrant offering, and it's acceptable to God, and it's pleasing to God. You want to please God? This is one way to do it. It is by giving. If we just step back a moment and take in how Paul thinks about giving, this is very radical. I mean, this is very different. Who thinks this way? I mean, we're Christians. We have to talk this way. <laughs> But I mean, who thinks this way? If you're the goer, if you're the sender, you might be more focused on just the details of how much money am I giving? How much money am I getting? How does that jive with my budget? And you have to think about those details. But what I want to point out is, for Paul, that was this big for him. God will supply his needs. So his focus is, first, on you, on the Philippians. That's his motivation. It's his love for the givers. And then it's also his love for God, who is pleased by this. And you know who's missing in this? <laughs> Mostly Paul. He says, I've got the payment. I'm well supplied. And that's the end of his discussion about himself. It goes to your benefit. And God enjoys it and delights in it. And may all our thoughts of giving, of money, in the mission of gospel work be like this. How is that possible? Not just to say that, but to really think that way about money. The aseity of God. It is only possible by means of the self-sufficient overflow of God's own richness. Paul is not living in a shriveled world where you have to suck, oh, get out just this last drop of financial help under the thumb of a dictator God who's stingy with his resources. That's not how God, or that's not how Paul thinks about God. If it was, he'd be trying to get money from you, and he's not. The only reason Paul cannot do this, but instead even do this, I like how this benefits you, is because of how he concludes this passage. What does he say? And my God, my God's not mammon. My God's not money. My God's not you. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you are a child of God, I appeal to you by this passage and all that is good in the world and God himself, give, give, give. Give to gospel work. Give to local churches doing gospel work. Give to missionaries going for the sake of the name. 
Give to them. Keep your wallet very loose. Keep your purses almost open. Be generous in giving. And I promise you I'm not saying that because I'm living on your support. I promise. I don't know how to convince you of that. But I assure you, God bears witness, as Paul would say, that this is not my motivation. It is the text of Scripture that you have in front of you. This is a fruit that increases to your credit. I, as your pastor, want you to experience the richest possible blessedness in the Christian life and a life that lives itself out as if dependent on the gift itself shrivels and dies, but a life that can step back from financial needs and haves and wants and look at a God who is self-sufficient and overflows generously and has the cattle on a thousand hills and will give you however many of those cattle you need for his work. A person who is fixated on such a God and who opens up and gives generously, that's a blessed life. And that is the sort of life that God desires for you to have. God is not telling you to give because he needs your stuff. It's already his. It's not yours. It's his. Notice that in this very verse, Paul says, thanks for your gift. In a secondary sense, it really helped me out. But I'm just more happy for you because honestly, look it. Here's the God I serve. He's the one who supplies every need. He's the one with riches and glory. Everything's from him and through him and to him. And because of that, Paul could genuinely love the Philippians and not need them either. How can you enrich a God who gives to you according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? <laughs> his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, and you want to add some dollars on that? <laughs> he owns everything. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you. And that frees you from fear. You can give like the Macedonians, according to even beyond your means, because God richly supplies us with everything we need and more so that we may give. The mission of gospel work is urgent. The motivation for gospel work and giving is love. So cast your bread on many waters. Give and put God to the test. Because that is the only way you will ever by experience know the riches of the glory of God in Christ Jesus is by giving. Let's pray. God, thank you that you promise to supply every need we have. We are not living like beggars in the world. Even if our bank accounts are small, some are big, some are small, and somewhat irrelevant. Lord, we have a God who owns all the cattle. So I pray that you would help us in regard to money never to worship, but never to bend the knee even slightly one degree in the direction of mammon. Money is nothing. It will pass away. The moth will eat it. It will rust. It will be lost in an economic depression. But you matter. You are of supreme importance. And as our Father promised to supply every need we have out of the overflow of your own self-sufficient richness, please help us to live in light of that generous and ready to give, motivated by our love for you and our confidence in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.